Okay, so welcome to the Truth to Power show on Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm your host, VJR Nathan, and with us today is a special guest, Melissa Hunter Gurney, who is a Brooklyn based writer, educator, and curator. She's the co founder of Gamba Forest, a community art space and literary lounge in Green Park, Brooklyn, and Black Land Ownership, a grassroots organization put into place to combat systemic oppression and property in. Uh, around property in the Americas. She, her work uh, tends to explore the multifaceted experiences of Pan-American women and artists and can be found in various publications, including the Yale Review, Pank, Great Weather for Media, The Opiate, Paris, Lit Up, Brilliant Short Fiction, and Across the Margin. Welcome, Melissa. Thank you. Nice to, really happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you, thank you. So why don't we start the conversation off a little bit about some of the organizations that you're um, helming. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, Gamba Forest first, and then we can kind of weave our way through that. And tell us a little bit about what's the, how was the origin of it, and all those kind of things. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, Gamba Forest started about five years ago. My partner and I um, actually started a literary magazine um, called Gamba Magazine, and um, through that work, we started doing artist salons, sort of in the area, different places that. Um, supported support, supported what we were doing and had a lot of um, acoustic musicians and uh, literary, you know, uh, literary events es essentially that celebrated the poetry, uh, writing, music, and just art in general. And um, as we started doing that more, we decided, well, you know, we, maybe we should have a space to do this. Maybe we should give that a try. And so we ended up finding a really great spot that was our kind of starter spot. Um, it was affordable, and we were able to sort of pay our rent off with with the uh, magazine and with the events that we were doing. So um, it worked out great. We were there for about a year, and we did thousands of events. I mean, pretty much every night of the week that year, we had an event, and it was, uh, and sometimes in the afternoons as well. And it was a really cool way to just bring so many different artists together. Um, as as we evolved it kind of turned into all kinds of things we started in that space moved to a garage space that we revamped and this old vintage garage and actually there were a couple garages in a big courtyard and we did everything there from you know gallery stuff in the first first space literary events to larger comedy shows um to you know podcasting and recording and video shoots and so it kind of became this kind of arts mecca and community activists kind of space um, where people would meet, gather, discuss. We talked about starting a school from this, um, a college of sorts, and we'd get together with these, these big ideas, some of which we still have. And then um, after that space, which turned out to be a, a much bigger project because it was a much larger space, a lot more money and a lot of fun, but we were kind of losing a little bit of steam we actually now are located in, still in Greenpoint, all three spaces were in Greenpoint, but now we're in a smaller um, little storefront right on Humboldt, and we sell crystals and still do literary events and acoustic music when it's not a pandemic, of course, yeah. um, and still kind of have community gatherings and podcasting and recording and, and things like this, discussions, panels, so... Uh, right now, we're really just selling crystals <laughs> and yeah. a lot of using it as an office for Black land ownership. 
Yeah, good, good. That's really great. And it's really good to build community. And despite the pandemic, it seems like you're able to uh, connect people and help people. So through the crystal work and all this kind of thing. And, you know, um, it's really great that you had the history of like connecting all these communities and, and have, building up the community. So it's really great. Um, yeah. Let's talk a little bit about, um, yeah, let's talk a little bit about Black Land Ownership and how that grassroots movement uh, started. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well basically, um, with, with Gamba kind of being the root of everything, with all the conversations we were having there, um, my partner Chris is a Black man um, and has been, you know, we have a ton of, of conversations through me as a woman and, and him as a black man and the different like, you know, systems of oppression that can be working against us or the, the things that we're constantly combating. Um, and just like intellectual conversations and philosophical conversations about these different groups and uh, oppressed groups and how they kind of, you know, are very different, but also integrated. And there's always different people involved in the conversation. And over the years, you know, it's really hard to find, um, a bunch of people that agree, even if they are dealing with the same issues, there's always, you know, uh, lots of different opinions and perspectives, which is what we love. Um, but one thing that he started picking up on, uh, he went out to Colorado and was out there working on a farm for a month and basically was just looking at all this land. And he was, as he was looking at it, you know, he'd call me and be like, what, you know, there's so much land out here. Like, it's crazy. You can just see for miles and miles and mountains and it's beautiful. And, one day he was just like, but who owns all this? And he started sort of doing research, which is sort of his, what he does a lot, um, all night long. Uh, he's an insomniac, so he'll stay up in the night and just research, research, research. And as, as he started researching and then kind of got me involved in, in the research, we started finding, you know, that it's not black people who owns the land. That's for sure. Um, and so as we did more and kind of looked into the history and started putting together a timeline, we were like, hmm, what is, you know, this, this is disturbing. I think between 1917 and, and now, um, the black community went from having about 14% of the land, um, mm -hmm. in the United States, which was cor correlated well with their population at the time to less than 1%. And so... Um, that's starting to be more well known, but we're like, you know, this is a human rights issue and it's something that needs to be organized around. And so black land ownership is basically a grassroots, uh, mission to combat the historical systemic and institutionalized marginalization experienced by people of African descent in this country when it comes to property, um, and, and globally as we, mm -hmm. as we expand. Um, but we, we kind of have the goal to centralize information raise funds and essentially encourage and empower people in the black community to purchase land, to buy it and, and make that easier for the community and more accessible. Um, we think it's really linked to education as well. And so, um, a lot of our, a lot of our work has been happening in schools too, talking to students just about the concept of ownership in general and what it actually means when you're growing up in a city and a lot of the students and their families are growing up renting, you know? Um, what, you know, ownership looks different to different groups of people because of location, because of um, history, because of education. So it's been a really fun uh, and eye-opening mission for us. Um, and we're actually looking for our first plot of land. We have kind of three different rungs where we're looking to buy about, you know, up to as large a plot as we can find. We recently um, almost purchased 100 
acre plot. Um, and before that, a 40 acre plot. Uh, there ended up being problems with both and we didn't go through with the final plan, but that's what we're looking at. Um, we're also looking into conservation in general. And, you know, one of the things people always say is, well, what are you going to do with the land? Um, what, you know, how are you going to make money off of it? And it's like, what if we don't want to make money off of it? What if we actually want to, the, what we do with the land is leave it alone. Um, and so that's part of our mission as well is finding plots of land that it's actually quite interesting. There's a lot of land that, you know, for whatever reason is considered, it's either in a trust already or, you know, there's wetlands on it or, or whatnot that you can purchase for pretty low prices. And so collecting um, land to conserve around the country is also a part of that mission. Um, but it's been really, uh, it's a lot of work and there's a lot of intricacies and a lot of law and a lot of history. And so we're also just in a very deep research phase of setting up kind of a visual history um, an animation of like what's really been going on in this country around this and how can we make that more transparent to people? Yeah. yeah. And speaking of uh, transparency and like uh, education systems and how you, you mentioned a few times about education, the, the kind of issues uh, or the problems with education in, in this regard and in regards in general, I think we have like a, a system of oppression that it starts at ideological, institutional, you know, internalized. I think there's one more of the four eyes. But anyway, um, I'm not sure which one that is. I'll look it up. But anyway, we'll have to we'll have to talk about like that and how and how the education system can either subvert or or kind of like um, reinforce these kinds of uh, for, for oppressive systems. So tell us a little bit about your feelings about education and how you think we can improve as a society yeah. our educational system. Yeah. Wow. Well. That's a very big thing. I've been working as a uh, educator for almost 20 years now. And um, in high schools, uh, most of that time, um, whether it be coaching as an instructional coach, working with principals and new schools that are developing, or actually teaching myself. Right now, I am working at a school down the street here in Greenpoint, ATEC um, High School. And we've just rebranded it and renamed it. And I'm working with the administration to basically reimagine the school through a reimagined vision of education in general. I think there's a couple of things I, I could say about that without, I mean, I have whole structures and worlds built about what education should look like in my mind, but that would take me a very long time to explain. I think some of the core tenets of it though, are that, um, you know, the, the research process um, is not taught to students. Uh, philosophy is not taught to students and, 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 their mo and, and logic is not taught to students. Mm. Um, most adults don't have, uh, you know, a good background in philosophy or logic. Um, I, I know that in all my education, I never got a philosophy class or a class in logic and the art of logic. Um, and, and in terms of research, you know, we've hit a space where we were actually just talking about this last night where, yes, we have the internet and research is sort of at everybody's fingertips, but it also means that misinformation is immediately at people's fingertips and being mm -hmm. able to navigate. I mean, one of the things that we've learned in even trying to research the history of black land ownership in this country, it's not easy to figure it out. This stuff is not just at your fingertips. You have to get into, to talk to people. You have to, you know, really dig through and sift through just so much inaccurate information. Um, so like 
you know, we've started a new decolonized research process that we're developing that uses the existential crisis as a catalyst for discovery and, you know, getting kids truly curious about who they are, why they're here and what they're supposed to do. And through those lenses, uncovering, you know, community and people and world. Um, and so, so yeah, I mean, th those are pretty much the three things, you know, you don't talk about philosophy because you don't see philosophy really taught because essentially there aren't correct answers. You can't really, you can test people if you want to on literature and, you know, the obviously, you know, different philosophers and their views. But in terms of what philosophy really is, you can't really test someone and say, okay, you know, you got a hundred. It's, it's about seeking truth. And that is not something that the education system is set up for. That's not something that adults unfortunately uh but realistically are set up for either that's not how the education system has ever worked teachers don't get classes in philosophy they don't get classes in what it means to truly seek truth or an interdisciplinary perspective um they don't get classes in research and essentially and i'm a teacher so i'm allowed to insult a little bit but essentially teachers aren't necessarily professionals in their fields either they either become professionals or experts in their fields or they don't most of my experience has been many people do not, you know, you're talking to English teachers who um, don't know what, how to write a, a true argumentative paper, you know, following even simple guidelines. And that's not to be mean. It's just that everyone was taught differently. Again, there's misinformation about what that should look like and what it actually looks like in reality. And so, you know, there's just so, so much that has to change. Like I said, in some of the questions you asked, I would, if I had children, that they would not be going to school. I would know school. Um, that's my opinion. I think, unfortunately, also, there's a really unhealthy social dynamics that happen in school buildings when kids are segregated by age um, and not learning from a, a true community that isn't segregated by age. Um, it's the only place where we age segregate and where, you know, you're not actually learning. If the goal is to get kids to college, well, that's not really what's happening because there's only a very small percentage of our country that actually makes it through a four-year college, so that's not working. And, you know, the if the goal is to get them to college, then the, the work should be leading up to college level, and we're not seeing that either. Mm -hmm. um, so there's just so much, so, so much. And then, obviously, when you get into oppression, uh, that system is just rank with op with oppressive systems um that have been uh, always been made to sort of give to some and not give to others and so it's it can be a very disheartening place but all to say and end on an optimistic note kids are brilliant and they are awesome um and there's so much to be learned from them i just i think the hardest part for me sometimes is seeing that some of that brilliance actually gets taken from them through the school system rather than uplifted um but luckily they are really good at dealing with adversity so they do learn that <laughs> yes yes thank you thank you and also um you know it seems like the the objective really is to uh, understand like um also oh, actually one other thought came to me about uh you know i understand you spent some time abroad you've lived abroad and you've lived outside the united states uh so now is, is there any other area in which you feel like they're a little closer to the goal or, or a little closer, or they're a little more progressive? Or do you feel like there's some areas of the world that they're a little closer to what your vision for this 
uh, thing is, or, or is it something that's very escaped all of us? I don't know. I tend to, I tend to not really, whenever I'm traveling, um, although I did work as an international teacher, so I got to see some of that. No, I don't really think so. I honestly think New York City, I mean, I'm sure there are a lot of places. Like I know Finland is, does some really cool, some really amazing stuff um, around sort of existential pedagogy and, um, and some interdisciplinary work. Germany has some really cool structures that I've read and, and thought about. Um, there's probably a lot of a lot of communities that do. I will say that that's kind of the traveling is what made me think, you know what, some of the most intelligent people that I've ever met are the ones who have not been to traditional schooling, you know, in indigenous communities, places where kids are raised in um, a community where, you know, they're talking to all kinds of different people all day long and learning from different people and deciding what it is they want to learn more about and utilizing people as that pathway, um, you know, instead of having this more traditional, like you have to learn math, English, social studies. I, I don't know that that really works anymore. And this idea that there should be, I guess, like for me, what's really changing in our society that is really hard to navigate because it's, every society has a hierarchy in some way or another, right? Mm -hmm. And that's still a very big part of how the world works. Um, you know, power entities exist, and then there are those who are less powerful. Um, that makes sense. But when it comes to education and learning, this idea of authority or someone holding all this knowledge is kind of becoming uh, less and less kind of relevant because the, the knowledge is in front of all of us now. Um, and also we know that people are really flawed in their understanding of, especially in this country, their understanding of history, what they've been shown or not shown, their understanding of different groups of people, um, you know, their understanding of diverse perspectives, their understanding of, so like you could go on and on. So I think what I, what I notice most, what I would say most is that some of the most intelligent people I've, I've met are the ones who learned from the world, like from the people around them who have that luxury. Um, others wouldn't look at it as a luxury, but I definitely do where they can just explore their communities and the wealth of knowledge that exists there in different ways. Um, without like saying, I learned from this expert or this, yeah. you know, no, totally, totally. And I think that, uh, one, uh, interesting meme that came across my attention, which has to do with this kind of idea is, uh, the meme that says like, um, at the end of this course, the students will be able to, and it says Socrates saying, know that they know nothing. And then yeah. the education minister going, I'm sorry, but that's not a measurable learning outcome. You know, <laughs> like, it's like the way in which we structure, even the, the way in which we structure the, the wins is like problematic and that we can't get them to investigate or be playful investigating their philosophies and, and understanding that there's so much to know. It's rather, oh, how can I test them on quantitative <laughs> outcomes? So I think it's interesting that, to consider yeah, that. Even yeah, even now when we know that that's not, a, that doesn't work, you know, we yeah. know that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, the Socratic method of like questioning and, and like getting to know knowledge, uncovering knowledge slowly is part of that method. Mm -hmm. And it's something that's kind of lost a little bit in, in, um, in these kinds of, uh, in these kinds of educational systems. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, um, thinking about truths and such. So now when we think about like how this is a truth, this is an, this is an essential truth that, you know the component of the component of the truth though in my in my view and kind of the view of this um 
uh, idea is that it empowers people in communities that helps them grow. It helps them kind of take power, helps them that knowledge helps them take power. And I think just uncovering the idea that, okay, this is this labeling it like labeling, this is systemic oppression and, and giving that label is helpful. But what are some other steps that, you know, the audience can take that people listening can be activate themselves in their lives and, and try to, you mentioned a few of them, but just to continue to develop that idea of like, you know, exposing themselves to, you know, different thinking ways of thinking and like kind of thinking more critically, critical thinking, but let's unpack that a little bit. Well, I think, um, I think for me, what's, what's always really eye opening, especially for adults or, you know, well, everybody, but is, is this idea of the existential crisis, the who am I, why am I here and what am I supposed to do? Mm-hmm. Those, those are questions that are very hard for people to answer. Um, but if you really look at it through like historical, scientific, um, spiritual, uh, and, and also like try to understand what you want to see in the future. Um, these different lenses really illuminate a lot. So, um, just in, in talking about, you know, trying to uncover, like, who am I? Like, you have to look at the history of your family, the history of some sort of ethnic background or place or demographic, or, you know, you can go through all of these different these different lenses. I think a lot of people, you know, then you have to look at the spiritual, like, who am I spiritually? Like, what is it that I actually believe in and why? And where did that belief start? And before me, where was that belief with somebody else? And who held it before that? And why has it morphed over time? And, you know, all of these questions, one of the things we're always saying is like, to understand anything, you have to go back to the beginning. Like, we all live in countries, right? And in, and in states and in communities but we don't know who made those lines essentially mm. or what what does what questions were asked when we decided that these boundaries were relevant what who decided um what were the different perspectives around around that uh why did we say some of them weren't important and and move forward with creating these boundaries like you know these kind of simple like at the root of questions don't really don't really get explored anymore and as we move further and further into the into the internet and into wikipedia and all these places where you know you want to know what kwanzaa is okay you can go read about kwanzaa on wikipedia when someone asks you you have an answer that's good enough these days Hmm. no 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 you got to go back like who wrote the thing about like what is it really do you really understand it where did it root in where did it come from when we're talking about christianity there's still questions that a lot of people can't answer even about their own religion or set of beliefs like what you know where did it start um were there communities other than the ones we know of who were practicing these things prior and if so what happened there and you know there's just so so much when you try to go back to the root of anything so i think that's something people need to take a bit more time to explore myself included i know it's huge for me but you know these are questions that, you know, until we started really looking at education differently, I hadn't really thought about myself either because no one was pushing me to think about those things. I think it takes me to why I, to why I write though, I will say is that there, there are all these answers and all these questions inside of us and they come out. Like if you allow yourself to explore, the things start falling, you know, and more questions arise and new perspectives get enhanced and all of this stuff. So but if we're just constantly taking in information and not reflecting on what we're holding or 
how it's being processed, processed within us or what assumptions we've already made based on things that we didn't even decide yet were true, you know, that you, you can really, it, it takes a lot of daily work, but I think it's, it's worthwhile. Thank you. Thank you. So this is, I just want to remind listeners who are listening, this is the Truth to Power Show. I'm ready for your Brooklyn. We're talking to Melissa uh, Gurney. Um, so now, uh, one other thing I want to talk about, it's a good segue in your last comments about your writing and what are your, um, uh, what are your themes or obsessions in writing and how do you focus them? And, and we can listen to a piece of writing that you've written uh, in one second, just to quickly to say, but generally just praying us what your themes are and what things you're talking about in your writing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so I write every day, so there's a lot of different things coming out. Yeah. <laughs> and I kind of let my I kind of let what comes out sort of guide me so I'm not a writer who's at, like I, I would say of course I'm purposeful but I, I don't go into my writing with a plan I mm. kind of let things fall and um, I would say that I definitely one thing that's true is I write a lot about women I write a lot about artists and sort of like outsider perspectives um, my first I, I haven't I have a few novels that I've written and not finalized or edited yet but kind of play with regularly and don't really want to fully finish because then I feel like, I don't know, they're just a, sort of a part of my day and my world. But um, one is about a group of artists in South America um, that all have stories and are traveling through the world together and evolving. Um, and through that, we get to hear about, you know, their kind of philosophies or different ways of thinking because of their stance in the world, because of their art, because of their um, placement and whatever power entities or hierarchies exist there. Um, there's definitely a lot of, a lot of women in my work. Um, I have a novel called the, the woman and that's taken up a lot of my daily writing lately in terms of just sort of seeing, you know, exploring ideas, um, that kind of are internal, uh, for people in general, but this is through the lens of a woman, but the, this internal scope of of knowledge, this in, internal story writing and narrative writing and ideation and fantasy and kind of letting that that fall out onto the page. Um, I also recently um, I'm doing I'm doing well now, but I was uh, two years ago or almost two years now, just about hit the two year mark. Um, I was diagnosed with a really rare cancer, and um, it, it came out of nowhere, and it was really upsetting because I've always been a very healthy person and it, it really confused me. Um, but I had to get, you know, three feet of my intestine removed and, uh, my appendix removed and, you know, lots of recovery time and, and, you know, dealing with mortality and, and all of these things. And so I think in my more, in the past two years, there's definitely been a lot of writing about that. Like this idea that someone went inside my body and took out three mm -hmm. feet and, they didn't see any magic in there. Like, what? Right. you know, nothing came out and scared them. Like, right. what is that? Um, but uh, there's just lots of interesting things about going through that process that have unfolded for me. Um, really reviewing and thinking about like what makes me feel alive in the world, what makes different people feel alive, asking those questions to others, um, and and what this internal world that we hold that I don't know that I hold so dear to me that is my kind of safe place this this place that I love to be what what is that all about and letting it unravel on the page, um, so there's a lot about the insides that's that's a theme. 
yeah, what's happening in you. the insides, whether it be the intestines or the narratives being built or the stories or the fantasies, uh, all of that is, is all over the page. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. So let's listen a little bit to some of your work. Sure. Go ahead, yeah. Um, this is just, I'll just read a, a short excerpt of this piece. It's called um, Tabao, or The Body is an Object. Uh, okay. The woman unfolded the layers of herself, the blood and veins, the organs and bones, the limbs covered in skin. She pulled apart her face, the nose first, then the lips. She removed the eyes and erased the brows. She unhinged rising cheeks and painted over the wrinkles in her forehead. When she removed these things, she couldn't be remembered by anyone. No one who loved her could see her anymore. No one who owned her could own her anymore. No disease could inhabit her. No tears could fall. No life could be imagined. No heart could break. No injustice could be done. When she saw herself like this, each hair removed, each structure diminished, she could remember who she was. She could place herself in nature to listen. There were no voices attached to this faceless being, no rules, no time, no systems, no labels, no conformity, no color. There was something she couldn't seem to escape, though. There was a child, a rabbit, and a field. There was a vastness so large she couldn't count it. She couldn't see the ends of its perimeter. All she could hear was her insides, tearing through time and space like wind tears through canyons and rivers tear through rock. She says it is only when one is faceless that they can truly see. She says the eyes are a facade. She says the body is an object. In order to get to this place, she writes on her wrists in black ink every morning. She spells out to bow. To bow stands for the body is an object. To bow reminds the woman she is more than skin and bone. To bow reminds her she is vast too. To bow reminds her there is no end to her perimeter. To bow makes choices larger than themselves. To bow rises above the body to see the world. To bow is quiet on the outside and loud on the inside. Tabao can hear themselves walking from beneath the skin. The steps sound like the steps of an angry man in the apartment above a creaky ceiling. Tabao likes this sound. Tabao does not like angry men. Tabao doesn't understand anger. It is not something they feel, but they feel sadness regularly, and Tabao understands that. Tabao thinks crying is as important as laughing, but Tabao also knows crying can kill. When Tabao is listening from above the crowd, Tabao hears and sees things Tabao can't understand. Sometimes when Tabao is up there too long, Tabao has to stop watching because when Tabao rises above this body, Tabao can see everything. Tabao can see the brilliance in the oppressed and the irrationality in the oppressor, the way these bodies guide us in and out of pain, the terrorism of authority and the disillusioned media wagging tails made of empty stones. Tabao can see the throbbing of empty wombs. Tabao calls the mind a womb too because it births ideas. Some of these wombs are filled with hate, others are filled with wine, and then there are the ones filled with so much knowledge they break themselves into pieces, passing out the rubble of their insides like spare change, hoping someone will collect as much as they've collected so they can exchange stories rather than money. Tabao can see that anywhere colonization happened, black and brown people have been left landless and white people have been left landful, wealthy on the outside, dead on the inside. Tabao can see the beauty too. A group of people falling into a bed of wet wildflowers, petals melting into skin. A being named Marcella and a being named Goose who danced their way into weeping willows filled with the songs of tree frogs and the light of fireflies. The way one being moves their hand along the edges of a rock, the flowers that grow beneath their pinky nail, the wrapping of a body in thorns, the beads that fall into grass when a head is severed from a neck, the animal quietly eating the rotting bark of a dying tree, the night falls and the full moon lights the sky, two children play in its stream. There is dancing happening where the moonflowers bloom. The kids hear it. They follow the sound of feet pounding dirt guided by throbbing veins of leaves. Two people, 
Marcella and Goose were making all that noise, their legs covered in moss. Tabao can smell the rawness of nature as it grows over their genitals, reminding the watchers of sex, birth, and their own existence. Tabao can feel the pangs as the moss crawls into eyes and through ears, stopping the chaos of sound and sight. Tabao watches as the tree frogs bury themselves in lush green, the fireflies circle once fragmented heads and belly buttons. Tabao watches until the blood of each being fills the wilderness within, the pulse of a majestical core they could only sense before. Synchronous chirping becomes the sound of silence. Fluttering bodies become light and dark. The growth of new flora becomes the singularity of breath. Tabao feels Marcella and Goose rise. They are faceless now too, watching and waiting for change. And I'll stop there. There's a bit more, but... Yeah, thank you, thank you. That's really great. And, uh, you know, it feels... It reminds me a little bit of, like... Um, I understand the term somatic writing, where you're writing like kind of from the body and from the body's rhythms and mm -hmm. biorhythms and stuff like that. So it sounds very much like that. I don't know if that's your process, but it sounds very much like kind of you're following the, the a certain rhythm or a certain feeling that you're kind of expounding on. Yeah. 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 I would say that's a, definitely a good way of describing it. Mm -hmm. Good, good. Thank you. Thank you. It's like similar to like what we talk about the stream of consciousness, where it kind of follows the conscious, the mind's kind of rhythms or biorhythms. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah. So tell us a little bit more about your writing and, and, and where, what else, what other stuff, where you can find your writing and all that. And uh, what, what other time of, what, where, like, do you said you had a, a few novels that you wrote, but you, you haven't been, uh, it's just something you just published, you haven't published rather, right? Well, yeah. Basically, this year, since the pandemic started, I hired an editor. I, I had an editor before and, you know, it didn't really work out well. And so then I, I kind of gave up on that for a while and just kept moving forward with the writing. But kind of like any, any artist, I think, runs into the problem of like, I like to write. <laughs> yeah. I don't really, the whole process of, you know, pub publishing things. I've published a lot of shorter works, of course, but the, the process is, I find, um, just... Yeah, it's not, it's, it doesn't inspire the writing. So it's yeah. uh, something I just kind of veer away from. But I have a lot of people always telling me, come on, we want you to publish the novels, publish the novels. And so this year I hired a, a, a great editor who's really wonderful poet um, and friend. And she has been working with me to, to go through and fully edit the first novel. I mean, the editing process is, you know, long. Um, and I'm definitely a perfectionist and love uh in in some ways not in others but i i care deeply about you know sentences and the aesthetic and and the the way that they feel and sound when i actually am going through the editing process it's like decorating a home like it takes a while and you have to buy all the right pieces and mm. you know and so right now i'm in that space of decorating this home like this this novel is is being pulled apart and redone um and so we'll see i think i think hopefully this year might be might be the year that I start pushing the novels out, um, out of my hands and into another form. So we'll we'll see about that. But yeah, my writing you can find, um, you know, a bunch of I think they're mostly in the bio. But the Yale Review has one of my favorite pieces, um, Esmeralda, a beautiful piece that still makes me cry when I read it, uh, even though I wrote it. Um, there's uh, Pank has the shifting of a mind in heat. Um, Magdalene Press we worked closely with they have a bunch of my stuff uh, the Par Paris Lit Up great friend of mine Malik Crumpler Mo most of my writing was published you know when we were doing the 
the literary magazine and we were working with all of these different writers, we met so many different people. The people who run Nomadic Press, the people who run Magdalene Press, the people who run Paris Lit Up, the Opiate. And we worked with all these different small presses who were really phenomenal and, and interesting. And so I'm kind of one of one of those. Like I, I, per, I do have work in other other entities, but I really like working with people I know, you know, I'm putting my writing somewhere when I, I think the magazine's beautiful and I, I like respect and love what the people who are doing it are, are about. Um, so most of my work is, is it's all over, but the, those are some of the places, some of the presses I love. Um, and being a small entity ourselves, kind of do it yourself or community organization, we tend, to, I tend to gravitate to those. Um, but yeah, I write every day and, uh, I'm constantly creating new things and then trying to refocus myself on finishing something and then creating something new again and, and refinishing and reworking. Um, it's a little bit, it's interesting. You would think during the pandemic, it would be, you know, inspire even more writing, but I find, and I have still been consistently writing and editing, but I, I also find that not being around people and not seeing other people's work or hearing it in person, um, it, it gives me less urgency in my writing, which is interesting. Um, so I'm excited to get back to a little bit of normal life, but I also love being at home and, and just working through things. And I'm starting to like the editing process again. Um, but yeah. Yeah. And then also uh, one of the, you have several websites as well that people can look up. As we mentioned, I can get, put the links in the about, uh, but we mentioned about black land ownership, black land ownership. Uh, Gamba Forest, Gamba Living, you mentioned again. And also there's a, uh, another one, Curating the Classroom, which I noticed yeah. you then the link to. We can go a little bit into that. We talked a little bit about education and such, but we go a little bit into the website and how it how it helps people and how they can look it up. Uh, yeah, curating Curating the Classroom. classroom um, well, all uh, yeah, so basically blacklandownership.com has all of our work there. We actually are kind of working on the website and revamping it now, so it's semi under construction, but still has all the information available. Um, curating the classroom, we were doing, you know, pre-pandemic, we were doing these uh, educator discussions um, and like an education night. And we, we have a lot of people we know who are working in different facets of education and then artists who also uh, work in education in some capacity or another. And we would get together and kind of talk about what, what you and I were talking about. How do you reimagine this system? How can we, we think about like innovating? Um, and so we were doing that and we highlight some of those discussions on curating the classroom. We publish some of our own work, um, and research as well as other people's work and research that we're into, um, on, on the blog page. And, um, we, we definitely, you know, in our about have some of our longer write-ups about our theories around, uh, what it means to use the existential crisis as a catalyst for research. Um, but yeah, and then Gamba Living is is a decor leg of Gamba. We do a lot of decorating and, um, you know, we, we eventually want to be able to take our decor work into schools. Um, all of our work is sort of connected, as you can kind of see, um, but take the decor work into schools and really change the aesthetic of how schools work as well. Um, but those would be, you know, projects of a larger scale once we once we keep working through our smaller community projects. Um, but that's just a passion, you know, making, making space beautiful and inspiring to people. 
we find really inspires the art and really inspires the activism as well and people's care in the world around them. When, when you care about what, where you are and what's around you, you tend to let that passion infiltrate into other areas of your life as well. Um, or that design or that care or that innovation. And so we like to make spaces super inspiring. Um, yeah, and then GambaForest.com talks about our, we had an artist residency going for a while. We've kind of squashed that with all of this. Everything there has basically changed because of, because of the pandemic, but it'll be back in action soon. And we highlight some of the things we're selling as well and ways to support um, some of our older issues in the magazine and uh, different artists work who we've supported over the years. Yeah, and also they can find you have a SoundCloud podcast as well, which interviews and highlights the uh, some of the artists and and writers who I think uh, have visited, have contributed to your magazine, right? Yeah, well, actually, the the best that's very old. We had a podcast we were doing, um, but we haven't really kept up to date with it. Uh, yeah. And right now, we are keeping up to date with another interview series for Black Land Donorship, um, which is awesome. That's really fun to watch. And there's new interviews every week um, with people, mostly like different black folks working in industries that tend to not have a lot of black folks in them. So if we're talking about architecture, if we're talking about, um, you know, land ownership in general, like trust organizations or um, just design organizations when it comes to urban design or, uh, you know, rural design, whatever it is. We, we've talked to a lot of interesting people there. Chris actually does most of the, the talking on that, but I help behind the scenes to kind of find the people and, and put it all together. Um, it's a lot of fun. That's been a huge learning experience, and it's, it helps to get the history out about some of, of what's going on in the United States or been going on and what's still happening now. Yeah, totally. I think it's at this point, it's like, you know, as, as, a, as participating members of society, we have to, you know, educate ourselves and you know, we can't rely upon, you know, just uh, um, the kind of the division and the polarization of, new, of information sources has made it more and more problematic to really have trusting uh, sources. So we want to be able to really discern and be That's able right. to understand, go back, go back to, as you were saying, as you're saying through the course of the interview, talking about like the origins and where, where I think coming was the motivation, well, who's benefiting from these, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and, and how, how does that relate, relate to, or does that, uh, connect to, um, power structures, you know, following the money, following, understanding how, how, what, what the power structure is and who, who's benefiting all this kind of thing. So it's interesting to think about, uh, and thinking about in terms of privilege and oppression, um, how you know we can kind of um, understand them in our own lives and, and the lives of others. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So speaking about um, you know one of the you know one of the major themes of the show has to do with the person's political. I know you were kind of um, in your answer questioning even the I mean like you know from the seventies they had the feminist new wave had the theme of the person's political kind of bringing together how like p p politics can be personalized and how it's very personal in the sense of like personal choices that become very much platformed in political uh, yeah. agendas. So to, if you can comment a little bit on that and about how this whole connects, you know, it's like individual choices and, uh, and making, making sure that we understand how oppression can be internalized. Yeah. And interpersonal was the last one, last I, I remembered. 
interpersonal how we no, treat no, others interpersonal, yeah interpersonal, mm -hmm. yeah yeah so interpersonal and internalization of these depressive systems so talking a little bit about the question is mainly about um you know like uh the personal is political and, and your comments on that uh the personal as political yeah yeah i mean i think it makes sense why that come what why that would be there would be a connection there that our choices certainly lead to you know, change or action or evolution of different entities um, that we may be involved in. It's always hard for me because political, like, how are you defining political? Yeah, just in, in terms, I'm defining in terms of like uh, being conscious, being conscious of the community, being conscious of like what we consider uh, actionable items uh, to bring up, uh, bring up or dismantle, uh, uh, dismantle oppression, these kinds of things, these kinds of systems that are in place that, or seem appear like they're like abstract or far away, but actually they're quite close to us, you know? Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. I mean, I definitely think our, our personal choices uh, impact the, the, our immediate communities, distant communities. That's part of the impact people don't always realize. Um, and, you know, it, it's really as simple as we were actually talking about this last night. Uh, I was having dinner with my neighbors the only people we, we see these days. <laughs> um, but basically this idea of, um, you know, just in thinking about our perspectives, people's per and people thinking about their perspectives and in us thinking about our own, you know, who are we talking to um, to make the decisions that we make? I think this is part of what, what when I think of politics as being personal, I think of, it more about politics, you know, how do you make your politics about the people, not just your people? Yeah. You know? And so sometimes when we're talking about personal, yes, it is personal to you, but you know, do you have, things can be very personal and you may be disconnected from people that are being affected by your choices. So mm. when we talk about who, who do you have at your house for dinner or, you know, who, who are you seeing on a regular basis? If you're only see if you're a white person and you're only seeing white people, for the most part, in in your personal space, your politics is flawed. Yeah, <laughs> I mean you can't you can't make political decisions or every decision you make is going to be based only on you and not about and your people, not not the people. And so, you know, this when you're talking about mainstream politics as well, or or like our literal political entities. Um, who, who is the council there? Like now we're seeing a change in, you know, with the new administration bringing in more diversity in terms of the, the power holders within their, um, within their purview. But, but still, I mean, we're still looking at a certain a person with a certain amount of money and a certain amount of education that's up at that level, um, who's going to be now making decisions for the rest of the world, who for the rest of the country that may not have, the that level of money or education and so how do they do that you know how do we decide anything without knowing more from different groups that we do not spend time with um so i i'm very lucky in that i do have you know there's certainly groups of people in this country that i don't have in my direct um vicinity but because of my work and because of you know my work with the arts community my work with education the types of schools i've been in the types of bosses I've had and, and all kinds of, there are a lot of different cultures represented in my day to day. 
again, not all of them. So I'm not saying that everybody has to, you know, have a representative from each group of people in their day to day or anything. But, but it is interesting that if we're going to talk about politics and our personal choices, the first thing we have to look at is, are we making choices based on our knowledge of ourselves and those just like us? Or are we making choices based on uh, an array of different types of people, whether it be classes, uh, monetary, you know, brackets or um, age or race or culture or language, whatever it is. So that that part is is to me a really important piece of the the conversation around the personal being political. Yes, yes, totally. I completely agree, and I think that you know when we think about um, you know exposure and our exposure to different viewpoints is very important to you know expand our circles just because of the fact that we're part of this community and we want to connect to the community when we not just be limited in our perspective about who our community is but rather embracing the idea of um of expanding that conception mm-hmm. um yeah, yeah so we'll end i think we'll end in a few minutes but uh, i want to give you a chance to also to read we have about 10 more minutes or a little less than 10 minutes uh, left um uh i want to give you a chance to read one more piece uh, if you'd like, uh, and then we can start to wrap up. Um, it's maybe a five five minute piece or something. Um, if you'd like to read, if you have anything else. Uh. Um, maybe I'll just finish the piece I started. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That probably works. Makes the most sense. All right. Great. Um, Thank you. Let me just find the end now, because I. You maybe can read a few lines before. Yes. Yeah. I will. Yeah. Um, okay. Um, okay, so to bow we're talking about, and well, I'll go a few lines back. The night falls, and a full moon lights the sky. Two children playing at stream. There's dancing happening where the moonflowers bloom. The kids hear it. They follow the sound of feet pounding dirt, guided by the throbbing veins of leaves. Two people, Marcella and Goose, were making all that noise. Their legs covered in moss. Tabao can smell the rawness of nature as it grows over their genitals, reminding the watchers of sex, birth, and their own existence. Tabao can feel the pangs as the moss crawls into eyes and through ears, stopping the chaos of sound and sight. Tabao watches as the tree frogs bury themselves in lush green. The fireflies circle once fragmented heads and belly buttons. Tabao watches until the blood of each being feels the wilderness within, the pulse of a majestical core they could only sense before. Synchronous chirping becomes the sound of silence. Fluttering bodies become light and dark. The growth of new flora becomes the singularity of breath. Tabao feels Marcella and Goose rise. They are faceless now, too, watching and waiting for change. Each night, another human comes, wraps themselves in the nature of desire, lets the sex grow up their legs and into their hearts, until eventually skin and bone are gone and they become everything they ever wanted. The sound of feet pounding dirt where the moonflowers bloom. But these moments of pleasure, these inklings of beauty, never last long for Tabao because Tabao can see everything, which means sometimes Tabao can see things Tabao doesn't want to see. And when this happens, Marcella and Goose dissipate. The rabbit in the field runs away, and Tabao is left waiting, feeling the edges of a perimeter creep back in, weapons in hand. Tabao can see the murders before they happen because Tabao knows that murder starts in the mind. It's not something that just happens in a moment. It's not a reaction, and it's not connected to feelings and emotions. Tabao feels fucking insulted when people say that. Tabao curses sometimes. Tabao knows that sentient beings are made up of feelings and emotions, 
Tabao knows that our feelings and emotions are our own, that they guide us intuitively, that they are the wet petals of wildflowers, the synchronicity of tree frogs at night, the glow of fireflies guiding us through the tall grass, the weeping willow holding us in its crevices. They are the snake that coils around our leg, causing us pain, fear of teeth and poison. They are the animals running through the fields and herds, the bodies covered in moss, the children wrapped around our legs, the tingle we feel between our thighs when something is being born. But they are not the knee and the neck of sentience. They are not the bullets in the back of sentience. They are not 32 shots in the sleeping body of sentience. They are not the wrestling to the ground and the choking of sentience. They are not six shots according to the autopsy of sentience. They are not shooting 12 years of sentience because of a toy gun. They are not five times in the back of sentience because of the defective taillight. These moments have nothing to do with feelings and emotions and everything to do with supremacy, pathology, and pure, relentless hate. The perimeter seeps closer and closer until Tabao starts feeling trapped in the pointy edges of pain. Tabao doesn't know if it was 500 years ago or last week because above the chaos and the structure, time is irrelevant. But at some point, Tabao had to put Tabao to sleep. Tabao had to put Tabao to sleep because each time a black being was murdered by a white one, Tabao could see the hate before it entered and Tabao felt sick. In this sickness, Tabao began to realize that Tabao could no longer see the beauty in whiteness. Tabao wanted to be too, but Tabao couldn't. Tabao saw the beauty in individuals, but whiteness became evil to Tabao. Whiteness seemed to leave feeling and emotion behind, and without feeling and emotion, Tabao couldn't see the trees or their flowers, and without their trees or flowers, Tabao couldn't see Tabao's trees or flowers, and without trees and flowers, Tabao could no longer breathe. When Tabao couldn't breathe, Tabao felt themselves wanting to kill too, wanting to kill everything so Tabao could live, so Tabao could find Marcella and Goose again. But Tabao thought, how can a people be content building corrupted bodies and forgetting about the wild ones, political bodies, economic bodies, oppressive bodies, covered up by the vastness of systems and institutions, a vastness so large it's analogous to bodies of water, titled with pleasantries like justice, education, and health, a vastness so corrupted when rolled out in one long layer of cement it kills flowers and trees across an entire hemisphere. A vastness so large those who fight against it are as mighty as the weeds growing within those tiny cracks and crevices, stepped on and burnt by the fury of discarded cigarettes, no water to kill the flames. Until that one day when it rains so hard the weeds grow tall enough to see each other across paved over dying roots. What happens then to bow wonders? Reflection on the body's loss, the inhumane violence, irrationality, collectively crying all that water out, watching its stunt growth dissipate on hot pavement until that one day it doesn't, till that one day all the tears meet with power and conviction and break through layer after layer of slate and silica, shale and iron, releasing the bougainvillea, the peonies and the willows, releasing the water into roaring rivers and insatiable streams, releasing a tsunami of colors, gold and emerald, magenta and turquoise, until that one day when whiteness disappears and the lingering smell of bleach and curdled milk gets carried away by a salted ocean breeze. They say salt water can heal anything, but sometimes it's the dissolving we need. The perishing of bodies into bodies might be our only hope, Tabao thinks. But Tabao doesn't want to think this way. So Tabao goes to sleep for a week or 500 years. Tabao would never know when Tabao woke up, but for Tabao to wake up, the white womb would have to burn trees and flowers again. And to do this, they'd have to learn to think with the brilliance of blackness again, because if they thought deep enough, they'd realize that's where their brilliance came from. 
They'd have to reimagine everything like Marcella and Goose, cover themselves in moss again, take their children too, let them soak into ground until body upon body became covered in green, so much so their false sense of supremacy could no longer survive, so much so their pathology could no longer survive, so much so their murder and their cruelty shriveled up. When this happens, Tabao will wake up again and Tabao will think about the bodies left behind, bodies of water, bodies of land, bodies of beings, bodies of art, so many bodies smashing against one another, salt inhabiting rock, algae stuck to trunks and vines, rivers fallen into oceans, drying up in mountains of sand, the juice of a woman saturating the pores of another, smeared across a thigh, dripping from fingers, inhabiting lips, a dog hair stranded on a human leg, waiting for the wind to take it away, death splattered across a field like life splattered across a canvas, a hand resting on a wooden beam, sunlight shining across bones and knots, oceans and land spontaneously smashing together, losing pieces of dirt and coral inside one another, one body connected inside something so expansive, so luminescent, the magnitude of compatibility goes unseen. When this happens, the perimeter will be vast again, and to bow, to bow will just be. Thank you, thank you. Beautiful, yeah. so beautiful, thank you. So, um, yeah, yeah, I really appreciated that, and I really appreciated your reading that, thank you. Um, any final thoughts as we start to wrap up? Let's um, communicate, yeah. Any final thoughts? No, I mean, just, you know, I hope that throughout this, this pandemic and everything that's been going on and us being stuck inside that, you know, people listening uh, have had a chance to explore their insides in, in all of this and spend some time listening to themselves and what's really happening in there. Thank you. Thank you. So I have a couple quick announcements. Uh, this is Ready for Brooklyn, Truth to Power Show. Ready for Brooklyn is a 501c3 nonprofit organization whose mission is to provide a free and open platform to community. And, and uh, we we uh, support it by listeners, by listeners like you. So if you'd like to give or donate, please go to readyforbrooklyn.org slash donate. Um, you can also sponsor this particular show by going to readyforbrooklyn.org slash truth to power. Help offset costs around, around the show. Um, also, finally, uh, some of our sponsors... Um, if you have, if you uh, live in New York City and run for the fun exercise, here's a way to learn something about the city you're getting in your workout. City running tours now offering neighborhood running tours with um, locals in mind. Go to cityrunningtours.com/new york city and check out live tour every Sunday, Saturday at 10 a.m. Or you can uh, go to cityrunningtours.com and uh, find out about uh, opportunity to learn the history of a neighborhood. Get personal recommendations from your guide. Choose some um, tours of 23 neighborhoods. So thanks so much. All right, so that's about it. And every Monday at 8 a.m. we air. Um, so thanks so much for being here. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Since you're already all here, since you're all here, why don't you tell me how it feels? Tell me how it feels. 